Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Nicole Levitt. Nicole is a is an attorney and she was working for a nonprofit, uh, women, women Against Abuse. And then she ran afoul of the present day diversity, anti-racism um, ideology. Hi Nicole, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, yeah, I've seen you on Twitter and stuff, but I really became aware of you a little while back when I read that article inside um, the the Free Beacon that um, um, I'm forgetting the, his name, Aaron, Aaron Cybarium. Yeah, yeah, he'd written. Um, so, if you wouldn't mind going through a little bit of what had happened uh, there, like with where you were working, and then, like I said, we could just go from there. Sure, I'm a family law attorney in Philadelphia. And um, in 2019, I went from private practice to representing domestic violence victims with one of the largest nonprofit domestic violence um, providers in the country. And I was really excited to get that job because I wanted to represent victims and I wanted to represent people who couldn't afford um, regular legal representation. And um, everything was really great for a while. I loved the job. I loved the clients. Um, it was very good. Then we had the pandemic and everyone started working from home. And then George Floyd was killed. And that's where the trouble really began, I'd say, in my agency and from what I'd seen across the country with DEI programs. Okay. So, I mean, you mentioned like right after George Floyd, that that's when it really came out. Like, I mean, I'd seen it and I, cause I'd been following it. I'd seen it like a lot earlier and I was coming in. There was, you know, there was a few people raising voices saying, okay, this stuff is getting out of hand. Um, but then you saw it spread all across the country everywhere. And it was just, people were looking for a fix and it was like the only game in town type of thing. And yeah. that's that they were and. Like, I don't think anyone really knew what they were talking about. Even the you only know, like, people were talking about Trump's uh, executive order, which I thought was well written, but I still don't think he had a clue what he was talking about. He's just like, okay, this sounds bad, so we'll do something. But um, so, like, when this new DEI stuff started coming in, like, so what kind of stuff was going on? Um, so we started having uh, meetings. And they split us into affinity groups, a white affinity group and a black affinity group, which I was really surprised that they did that. I didn't like anything about it. I went a few times and then I said, I I I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go to any meeting where I'm split into a group based on the color of my skin. But that, you know, that wasn't it. Um, we were bombarded with trainings and emails um, about white supremacy, about anti-blackness. Um, and they were all based on Kendi, D'Angelo, Tema Oaken, you know, that very specific anti-racist ideology, which to me is borderline racist itself or actually racist itself. And um, management was telling us things like decolonize your bookshelf, white people, um, white people go to this meeting tonight and, you know, if you can, it was surge. I'm trying to think of what that acronym was, but it's a, it was a really, um, I would say radical group standing up for racial justice. That's it. Surge. God. 
Do you know them? No, 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 but just the name. Right. Uh, but, okay, so, like, I mean, the, thanks to people like Chris Rufo, and I said, you know, when Trump put out that executive order, I mean, he, you saw this going on in a lot of governments. You saw this going on in schools. It was, I think it was in the, I think it was in the FBI, and it was at one uh, nuclear, res- like, nuclear research facility where they were actually- Sandia doing- National Laboratories, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, I mean- like I keep bringing this up because it was really publicized and the school is still having a lot of problems. So this was in 2015 um, and it was the Fieldstone Academy in New York city. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know what had happened there or if you heard about it. So I think it's like $50,000 a year to send your kids there. And it's, yes. it's K through eight. And so they took kids from grade three to grade eight once a week and they split them up into affinity groups. They sent letters home to the parents uh, because especially because of the biracial kids, like how do, how do your kids identify by what race? And so they split up the kids. They told all the kids that, you know, if you're white, you were the problem and you were the cause of all that's evil. If you were any other race, you'd be oppressed and it was whitey that was keeping you down. And it, these kids just went online and started researching things like what's good about my race and within a matter of a couple of months like all the kids not just like they all started spouting off like racist nationalist stuff and you know like like my race is better than yours the school had all kinds of racial issues it's still going on um and i'm like okay this has been done over and over again what do you think was pushing them to do something so radical like i mean the things that had been fought against for so long. So like you said, this ideology wasn't new. It wasn't invented after George Floyd died. It was kicking around. And obviously people in my organization adhere to the ideology and believe it. And this was the chance to implement it. And nobody was saying no, because I think the whole country was rightfully sad at what happened to George Floyd and people don't like racism and want to stop it where it, where it occurs. But if you're looking for racism everywhere, you're going to find it where it isn't. And that's going to create problems. Yeah. I mean, like something you just said there, like the, you know, people were just looking for something where, but again, with this stuff, it's going to sound conspiratorial, but it's not. Um, okay. But so uh, what's her, uh, Crenshaw wrote her first paper on intersectionality in 89. And then she wrote her second one in 91. And that's the one where she said, we have to get away from the liberal ethic. We need an identity uh, or politics based on identity. And then mm. I think it was in 89 as well. You had the first gathering of again, Crenshaw and Stefanczyk and uh, Delgado and all these people. And they came, there was a conference to basically, it was like the nice, the first Nicene council for critical race theory. Basically it's, this is what it was. Um, I bet and, that was fun. Yeah. So, I mean, they got it all together. So around that point was when a lot of these, like all the studies courses in universities took on that intersectional framework. And then you had people with masters and PhDs coming out around the late nineties, looking at the world through that framework. Then they go into government, they go back into academia, they go, you know, they get jobs in HR. Like these are the people who like meetings. 
and they, you know, they go in and okay. So nine 11 happens, you know, Bush jr. Doesn't want to seem racist or whatever. Let's hire some anti-racist people. And like, you know, if you want a chemist to go get a PhD in chemistry, you want someone who's going to help you on racism or whatever. You go someone with, you know, PhD in sociology or African-American studies Mm -hmm. or things like that. But what they were bringing in was what this was taught. And it goes back to this paper from, I can't remember, I think the guy's name was Deutsch or something like that. And like, he talks about the long march through the institutions. Yes. Yes. And, and that's what this was. And when I say like, that's where it's, I'm beginning to sound conspiratorial, but I don't think anyone was doing it consciously. Maybe some of the people who were in academia, who wanted to organize this thought of that and were thinking about it, but the people who were getting out and getting jobs, then they were moving up the chain and then they were hiring people. They were hiring people who thought like them, which most people would do. Right. And mm-hmm. it's just, um, <clears throat> so by around 2014, it was really getting off campus and it was going into nonprofits. It was going into like, you know, we got into psychology. It got into a lot of these, you know, got into counseling, got into social work and got into all these things. So by the time, you know, 2016 rolls around, it really started, I mean, it's really picking up steam. And then by the time George Floyd happens, they've integrated themselves into a lot of these institutions, or at least, like I said, the decision makers. So yeah, at that point they said, yeah, we need something. We're going to do this because this is what we're being trained to do. So like I said, it's, I, I know I sound like a little conspiratorial, but it's, I just think that's, that's what happened. I think that's how it, it sounds reasonable to me. It doesn't yeah. sound conspiratorial, but I wanted to touch on one other thing. Cause I mean, it's, it's coming up in here in Canada a lot, but I think we're so far gone, but you'd mentioned in your, or in that article, um, you know, like some of the stuff you were saying was, about how Jews have taken on whiteness. I've been saying this a little bit for the last three or four years. Like there's some anti-Semitism coming out of here. And I mean, there was an article in the New York times. And I think this is, you know, grace of, or as an opinion piece, it was grace of uh, Barry Weiss. It was right after the tree of life shooting. And I think a week or two after that, it came out in the New York times and they were talking about how left-wing attacks on Jewish people were going underreported, even though I think it was something like 40 of the previous 42 attacks in like the last, in the two years before that article had been perpetrated by what you would call left-wing assailants. And so, I mean, I've been noticing this and I said in Canada right now, recently, I mean, our government was funding an anti-racism program that was going out to like, you know, going out to broadcasters and the guy was a raging anti-Semite. And yeah. it's, and it's, he was preaching the same anti-racism that our government's using. And I mean, our government put out a thing where their definition of white privilege is that it doesn't matter the skin color. If you, uh, if you have thoughts that uphold white supremacy, you're white. Like it's yeah. ridiculous. So, and the thinking, be, the thinking behind that is if um, a left wing or a minority attacks a Jewish person or a white person, it's be- the underlying root cause is white supremacy. And that's just ludicrous. That's crazy. And I didn't study all of this in school. And 
I didn't study critical race theory. Um, I didn't study women's studies or anything like that. I, I wasn't interested in it. But when not, when this started happening and we were working at home and there was a lot of downtime, I had nothing better to do with my time for a while. So I really delved into, into it. Um, I'm forever grateful to James Lindsay and New Discourses for everything that he's put out and Helen Pluckrose and Counterweight because that's really kind of how I got up to speed on what was going on. I was the same thing. Like I, okay, I did a poli-sci degree. So I, you know, when I got out of, I did my bachelor's and finished in 95. So, I mean, I got some post-colonialism in there and, you know, some of the stuff was starting to come out, but not really a lot of it. Then, then I ended up working in IT. So, I, you know, nothing to do with this stuff, but yeah, I, around 2018 or so, um, I, like I got, I was working overseas. I got back in 2014 and it, it took me a few years to, I'm like, where the hell is all this weird stuff coming from? And because around 2018 was when I really started digging into this stuff. And it was, yeah, it was, once I started reading, I was like, this is just nuts. Um, yeah. But like, I wanted to get back to the anti-Semitism thing because it, it's like, these are people who are preaching you know, inclusion. And, you know, I mean, there's a group in Canada called anti-hate. That's actually, as far as I'm concerned, they're a pro-hate group, but but like you can see things with like the the equation of equating everything to whiteness and saying Jews are now white or Jews have taken on whiteness. And like the horrific things you've seen about like I've seen about the Holocaust or Anne Frank and all that other, you know, it's just garbage. But I think it was 2019 at Hanukkah when there was all those attacks on synagogues. And then there was the last one where it was, I think it was the most violent one where yes. there's a black man who stabbed a few people and the local newspaper in that town put out an article about how Jews should not get consumed by whiteness in, in, in the wake of this attack. And I'm like, but they were attacked and it was, you know, you're making about white supremacy and it's just yeah. a, you're not helping the victims out at all, but B you're not also helping the community where like, you know, so it was a black guy. So you're not helping that black community because you're not doing anything to give agency to that guy or anyone who thinks like him. It's very disempowering. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that around that time and later that, and people are saying this all the time now that to the left, if a black person does something wrong, you can't point it out. Um, you know, they can't, publicize it on the news or anything like that they won't it's just they won't say it and I remember at the time during that attack they it took them a long time to say that he targeted Jews they didn't want to say that they wanted it to be like some random attack well he drove from New York to Muncie from New York City to Muncie I think it's a 45 minute drive it's not necessarily an easy drive for a reason Muncie's a heavily Jewish town and then they found his writings and all his writings contained anti-Semitic screeds. So then they admitted it. But before that, they were trying to hide it. And the question is, why? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's when you get into the whole, like I said, that's that intersectional framework, right? So when you look at mm -hmm. who's oppressed and who's not and, and like where you are on that, you know, where, wherever you are in that matrix, whether you're 
you know, you've been granted whiteness or not to be like, it's the same thing. You had the same thing happening with Asians. Like you, they, you know, when the attacks happened, it's like they didn't publicize the attackers and things like that. The Democrats at the same time, while pushing for affirmative action, which is actually harming Asians, they're, you know, I think like right after Biden stopped the, um, the Department of Justice or the Department of Education for looking into the Harvard thing, mm-hmm. you know, they said, oh, we're going to do a, a passing statement on like anti-Asian hate or whatever. And it's just like, okay, but you guys are such hypocrites. You're, you're perpetuating it. I mean, there was also a thing in, uh, this was in Toronto. This was during COVID. Uh, it was an online conference and it was uh, brown complicity and white supremacy. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just like, come on. I mean, one of the people who is, okay, one of them was a journalist at the Toronto Star, which is like one of the larger newspapers in Canada. The other one is on, like, he's on like the board of directors of like a large school board in Ontario. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. That is scary. <laughs> but that kind of thinking. Yeah. But, okay, so one of the other things I, I like, I, read in your article it just it was like they were going after the organization itself because you know okay we're going to bring in diversity counselors whatever we're going to help serve a more marginalized population okay sounds great you know off the top of that no one should be opposed to that but like from everything i've seen about this and everywhere i see it go in the first job is to like focus inwards and take everything apart there and make sure that, you know, everything, everything internally fits what you're going to do externally, which I understand to some, some extent you have to have some cohesion, but it just, you know, it's, it's like they want to destroy what they're trying to build. Um, I I don't know if I'm making sense here. No, you are. And I definitely felt that way. So um, one of the aspects of this was they brought in some consultants to do an equity audit a racial equity audit. The premise of that audit is where does white supremacy manifest itself in your organization? Not, are there areas where your organization is racist or where where there's white supremacy, but where does it manifest? It's definitely there, so we're gonna find it. Um, and I was like, whoa, that does not sound good at all. And, and they're gonna make policy decisions for our organization based on what these consultants come up with. And that's still ongoing. They haven't announced what they were doing, but that was sounded just so scary to me because of the policy decisions that are going to come from it, from a faulty assumption. This is my biggest problem, I think, with all this stuff, be it the racism stuff, the gender stuff, and like now, like, you know, if you talk about like um, environmental justice and whatever, like all the, so, you know, we can argue to the extent that there is racism in Canada, United States. We can argue about that. You know, we can agree that racism is wrong and yes, it's still present and we should do whatever we can to mitigate it. When you've got a you know, women's abuse organization telling black women not to call the police because of, you know, their belief that thousands of black people get killed every year by the police, which is completely so, false. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. So that's on their website. They didn't like tell us to tell our clients not to call the police. Mm -hmm. What they did was try to 
we spent a lot of times talking about other alternatives like restorative justice and things like that. My point was always like, well, what are the success rates for these programs? Because we would, if we're counseling clients about restorative justice, we would need to let them know if they're successful programs. Um, and my other point was the police are needed. Yes, maybe they need to be reformed. They don't always handle domestic violence um, calls in the best way, but no one does. Like, so reform them, train them better, but we need them. Um, and people just couldn't get that. Like there was a big thing where um, there was a, a shooting, a police shooting in Philadelphia. Um, I think the guy's name might've been Walter Scott and he had a knife and he's coming towards the, the police officer with the knife. They're yelling, drop it, drop it. He, he didn't. And they shot him. And people in my agency were very, very upset by that. Like what the police didn't have to shoot him. They're cold blooded murderers. And they have no idea what it's like to be attacked um, by someone with a knife, someone who's, you know, clearly having some psychosis. And they're kind of stirring up more hysteria instead of calming things down and bringing people together. They're stirring up hysteria and being very, very divisive. I mean, it was the same thing with, uh, let's say, Jacob Blake. It, yeah. You know, I mean, oh, yes. And that, I mean, that, that led all the riots. Then you, you, you had Kyle Rittenhouse after that. I mean, like it's, you know, the, yes. I mean, the, the whole, I mean, it was going on like right, like during the middle of all the George Floyd stuff too. So, I mean, it was just, it was a little much, but yeah. So Jacob Blake, for me, that was an even, an even stronger case because he started going into the car. There's two children inside the car. It's someone who does domestic violence work. I know he could have taken those kids and done whatever with them or, or kept them from their mother for a long time. Or, I mean, that he could have hurt them. He, they could have been killed. That was a very serious thing that was going to happen. Um, and I don't like seeing people get killed or shot or hurt, but you know, in the world that we live in, sometimes it's necessary, unfortunately. But again, to look at all these things that, like, like I said, it's the distraction from what's really important. So if you just focus on the race and not on anything else, what are, what's causing the issues in these communities or like whatever, like it just like the police thing, I like that, like, cause there was a lot, I mean, there's a lot written about it and whatever, but if you look at, look, some of the work that uh, Roland Fryer did, um, yes. but I mean, like when he talks about that and it's just, okay, so there's under policing for the violent crimes, but because of the number of police that go into these neighborhoods, they're over-policed for the smaller things. And then that over-policing leads to antagonism. And then that leads to, okay, you're, you're more, they're disproportionately violent against, you know, uh, whatever people of color, whatever you want to, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you can look, if you start looking at things, I mean, you have to be a little bit dispassionate here. Like you, you know, because otherwise you'll get a little, I mean, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of bad stuff. Like you'd get a little overwhelmed, but if you can't look at it dispassionately and say, okay, this is what's causing it. This is what's doing it. So if we can get a handle on the violent crimes and we'll have less police and if we'll have less police, we'll have less of the other stuff. I mean, like it's, you know, just the whole defund the police. And then now like you, you're looking at the results of 
you know, what, what that did now. Yeah. And I don't think people in these uh, marginalized communities want to defund the police. Like, I think that's been very clear that they want, for the most part, they want more police in their communities because they're war zones, especially in Philadelphia, where I live. And I've heard from a lot of people in these kinds of communities that, oh, now I had to get a gun because, you know, my neighbor's house was shot up. My car was set on fire. You know, it's, someone shot into my house. Like it's, it's very serious and defunding the police hurt them the most. It was, you know, a luxury belief, a luxury idea that people could use to signal virtue. And it ended up hurting the people that they were trying or saying they wanted to help. Not, okay, not just that. I don't want to just focus on that, but like, the, I don't know if you read uh, Michael Schellenberger's book, uh, San Francisco. I yeah. did. Very yeah. good book. I love Michael Schellenberg. And yeah, I mean, like I was just recently in Vancouver, and I mean, the East End, of downtown Vancouver. It's 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 like you know, like the like the pictures he shows from like L.A. or San Francisco, or just tent cities and stuff. And like again, I'm trying to just figure out like how like these politicians are keep getting voted in, and you're doing the same thing over and over again. Like, like the definition of insanity. Yeah, but right? I mean. At one point or other, like it's gotten to like an extreme, you know, it's gotten to an extreme now and it's something has to get done right away. But like it happened just like it's such a slow trickle. Like it just, I just don't understand why people at one point or other didn't just, you know, stand up and say like enough's enough. Like we need something different. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very happy with um, the recall in San Francisco of their district attorney. And and I hope that that can happen in other places too. I would love it could happen if it could happen here in Philadelphia, um, because we need district attorneys who are going to act actually prosecute criminals, and not give them fourth and fifth chances while they're hurting other people. Because you know it's the the innocent citizens who are going to suffer. Someone's going to suffer from it. So. Yeah. Fix it. Yeah. That's okay. Like the one thing about this, you know, or I should say the one thing, I mean, like one of the things about this is the overcorrection. Now, I, when I got back from overseas, I saw it and I saw it specifically relating to Islam. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, but like the, the calls for, you know, silencing speech and everything that were starting up and you were seeing more and more of it. And my first, thought was okay you're going to get over corrections and you know they're not going to be good you're just going to go too far the other way but like the, the institutions that used to protect like like the same thing happened up here in Canada but the institutions that used to protect people in the United States for the civil liberties got overrun with this stuff so now when you have overcorrections you don't have anything left really to fight back and like you know there's a lot of stuff about things that are being going on in Republican states. And, you know, I agree with some of it. I agree. I disagree with other criticisms, mm-hmm. but the ones I do agree with, I'm like, what are you going to do now? Like it, it, I keep Hitchens used to talk about this play a lot. And I mean, I've seen the movie, um, the man for all seasons. There's a point in it where Thomas Moore is asking the, the British prosecutor, like, you know, well, you know, like to catch the devil, would you cut down 
any laws? And the guy said, I would cut down every law in England. And then Thomas mm-hmm. Moore turns around and said, well, you know, once you've cut down all the laws, if the devil turns around and comes at you, where are you going to hide? What are you going to do? And I'm, I'm looking at him like, this is what you did. You got rid of everything that protected you. And, mm-hmm. you know, fine. I'll, I'll grant them that the right wing has been evil and, you know, yes. like evil incarnate since the beginning of time. And the only thing that held them back was the left wing. Fine. I'll, I'll grant you that. But you've gutted yourself. What are you going to fight back with? And mm-hmm. it's like, like when I said, you know, like they, they distract from the, the major problems like here, like you, you've left yourself nothing to defend yourself with at this point. Right. Um, I feel like we only have the courts and that is a big question mark. Do we really have the courts? So I have been getting a lot of communications from people since I've gone public saying, Thank you for speaking up. I'm having a similar situation or I had a similar situation. And people are afraid to speak up because it's going to cost them money to hire a lawyer and and go to the EEOC and then to state court or federal court, wherever the suit's going. And so we do need other alternatives. But right now we don't have any. Yeah. And I mean... Like when you mentioned you still have the courts, but hey, you know, the critical legal scholarship, that's where all this stuff started from. So, I mean, it came out of Harvard Law. Uh, but that, again, like what happened at Yale Law School just recently, like if these are yeah. the people in law classes, um, I mean, I remember reading something about, I think this is back in 2015, and it was a professor of criminal, um, criminal sexuality, um, or sexual criminality or something like that at, at Harvard law. And she was talking about how she had to give out trigger warnings before she talked about rape cases. I'm like, okay, you're in a, like a class about, you know, sexual criminality and you're, you can't hear about rape. Like you're in the wrong place. Exactly. And so they had the same thing. Uh, I think it was at Rutgers law because there was a case that had the N word in it. And I understand it's a terrible word, but if you can't hear that word as an attorney, you're in the wrong field. You need to go somewhere else because it's tough and you're going to hear a lot of bad things and you need to know how to deal with it. You need to know how to deal with life. And so I'm very alarmed at this current crop of lawyers that are coming out of Yale and um, Harvard and basically a lot of other law schools too. But we still have laws on the books that protect us. The civil rights laws on the books protect us. And so more people need to use them, but the problem is it's costly and it's very slow. This is where I'm, I'm, I'm like point fingers a little bit, but right after Trump got elected, a lot of people on the left and there were some people like, you know, on the right you know, and rightfully so. Like I, I think Trump, <laughs> I, you know, not a supporter, not a fan. I, I don't think he's rational or, I don't think he's stable. And I don't think he should be anywhere near power. Right? Like, right. But whatever. That's he got elected. That's. I mean, I'd definitely take him over Biden yeah, right now. But, yeah, I guess. That's not saying yeah. much. But I mean, all these people, and I use Sam Harris as a sh- fill-in for this, and I think it kind of, especially with his latest interview and trigonometry, kind yeah. of. But you know, and it's not wasn't to pick on him. It was just like he's big enough to not even notice me. But like you know, like. There were a lot of people like him who said, okay, there's excesses of the left that gave us Trump. But then right after the inauguration, pretty much, it was all Trump all the time. 
it did nothing to make your side more electable. Now, it, like, if it wasn't for COVID, Trump would have gotten back in. And, you know, you, did, you shouldn't have had to rely on a pandemic. You know, that, that there was that article in Time magazine about how a cabal of left-wing people helped, you know, okay. Yeah. And then the whole Hunter Biden thing. Like, you, you, you should not have needed to do that to beat Trump. And if, like, that's what you had to do, that's a huge failure on your part. I'm like, you did nothing to fix your side. So um, I'll take a, like a, a right-leaning person, someone like, um, oh, why can't I remember his name right now? David French. So he was an attorney. He was with fire. He's a civil rights attorney. Yeah. And he was freaking out about the anti-CRT legislation, which I think a lot of it was badly written. There were some that was yes. very well-written, but a lot of it was badly written and it was ambiguous. I agree with it, but. Yeah, it was reactionary, yeah. badly yeah. written. Yeah. Poorly conceived, but, but there's a reason that they exactly. <laughs> but I mean, someone like French, if he said, "Okay, well, you know, you have all these civil rights laws that you can use," you're a lawyer, you're living in New York City where this stuff has been going on since like 2015. Have you helped mm -hmm. represent any families to fight against this stuff? Like, why didn't you? If you were so opposed to Trump and you thought this was some of the stuff that helped him get elected, why didn't you do something about it? Like, it's like. Yeah. I look at that. I'm like, you let this nonsense consolidate power for four years because you were share, you, know, you were staring at a shiny orange thing, and you couldn't deal with what was wrong on your side, and it just like like that infuriates me. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and it, it's kind of the same with like the Republicans and healthcare. Like in in America, there are a lot of problems with um, Obamacare, but how long did they have to? to make something better and they didn't do that either. So yeah, I see that on both sides. No, don't get me wrong. Like I said, there's, you know, there's mm -hmm. plenty to argue on both sides, but it's if the right wing had been in control of all those institutions and it got corrupt like that, I'd be saying the same thing about them. Like it's, you know, the left was supposed to be the ones that held up the enlightenment values. The left, you know, free speech was a left wing thing. Now you have people saying it's a right wing you know, it's a right wing value. Like it's like it, it flipped. It's... Exactly. Like, and the constitution is right wing <sighs> and they want to get rid of the bill of rights and the constitution. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's crazy. All the documents, all the institutions and documents that are protecting us, the far left wants to just destroy. Yeah. But I mean, like I said, I, unfortunately, I, it's the same thing up in here in Canada, like our civil liberties association. I was surprised when we had that truckers protest, the, the Canadian, the Canadian equivalent of the ACLU actually did defend them at one point. So I was surprised about that, but that's amazing. Yeah. But yeah. they've, you know, they're pumping out this diversity training. Um, you know, hell we've got a ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. Yeah. Know, like we've got a ministry of CRT basically. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's nuts. Um, that's what Kendi wants here. Uh, oh, okay. No, but okay. Our, our foreign service and our diplomats are being taught like that. If you remember the, the, uh, if there was that visual from the Smithsonian, like, you know, whiteness is love of the written word and all that. Yes. Our diplomats are being taught that like on, on the Canadian government website, the definition of white privilege, the last sentence says, this is not only about skin color. If you th think in a way that upholds white supremacy, you have taken on whiteness. It's on the Canadian government website. 
have has the world just gone mad? Like, I don't get it. Why or why is the West so hell bent on destroying itself from within? The best explanation I saw of it was what's his name? Um, Jonathan Roach, his book, Kindly Inquisitors. So he mm-hmm. talks about what he calls the humanitarian threat to liberal science. And so he was writing, I mean, I think the book came out in the early 90s. So he was writing about the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And it was like when you know the first political correctness stuff came out. And oh, he was talking about speech codes on campus. But that's what this is, right? So yeah, post-colonialism, when you say, okay, we want to help people get over the, uh, you know, the, the trauma of colonial past, fine. Again, sounds good. But when you then really look at it, what's going on, it's it's nonsense it's you know mm-hmm. uh, i think like you mentioned helen pluckrose and james Lindsay, like in their book cynical theory they, they talk about how post-colonial theory came out after the colonial period was over like colonialism was done um but yeah, yeah so it's it's like you know anti-racism sounds good like oh don't you want to be anti-racist like don't you want to fight homophobia don't you want to fight it, it sounds good on the surface and the next thing you know you're taking these loyalty oaths and you know if you yeah. step out of line like you know, if you like the shibboleth changes pretty much on a daily basis. And if you're not up to it, you know, if you don't keep up with it, you're done. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, so we, we need to atone for slavery. That's what all of this kind of boils down to. And so the way we atone for it is by learning about microaggressions and saying that, Anytime someone accuses me of a microaggression, I have to believe them if they're a person of color because I'm white. It it makes no sense. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, but it goes beyond that. It's okay. Again, like I'll talk about the overcorrections because it's, they keep happening. And so was it in 2021 um, when there was, you know, like, Gaza launched rockets into Israel and then retaliation. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. all this talk of Jews and whiteness and this and that, I mean, you had Jews being chased down the streets of American cities, European cities, like it happened in Canada. Um, There was like the neighborhood I live in. I, and some people say this was false. So like take this with a grain of salt, but apparently there was a notice going around that, uh, you know, individuals were were scoping out homes that had mezuzahs on them. And like, I live in a neighborhood that has a large Orthodox and, you know, has like a fairly large Orthodox and also fairly large Hasidic communities around where I live. So, mm-hmm. you know, hearing something like that, it's, you know, like there's going to be, there, well, first of all, you don't want people to get hurt, but like, you know, you, I don't right. want to see that in my neighborhood either. It's just, and that they're, you know, they talk about right-wing anti-Semitism, but I was like, no, this is coming from the left. You're... Mm-hmm. It, it, it's kind of like you're signaling saying, okay, well, you know what? We're not, we don't care about these people anymore. You can do whatever you want. That is exactly it. And so at one point during all these trainings, a friend of mine who is also Jewish um, sent out an email with an article about anti-Semitism in the civil justice, in the, the racial justice movement. And I replied back, great, I, you know, I think that we should talk about this and I hope this is something why my organization would support. You would have thought that I got up and said the most racist thing ever because I got, you know, just a ton of negative emails back from my colleagues and some management 
accusing me of furthering white supremacy, taking the spotlight away from brown and, and black people, um, saying, you know, whatever Jews have gone through, it doesn't compare to what black people have gone through. And you can hide behind your shield of whiteness while black people can't. It was really over the top and crazy. But part of why I felt that article was so necessary is because they were ignoring the anti-Semitism in it while trying to force us to adhere to this ideology that that is in itself anti-Semitic. Um, I don't know if you remember in the beginning when they had um, the protests that turned into riots in L.A., they targeted specifically targeted a Jewish neighborhood, Fairfax, and vandalized some synagogues there and some other things. So um, for some reason, Jewish people are definitely a target within the anti-racism movement. But OK, when that happened uh, after the like the, when you said that's the very start of the George Floyd riots in L.A. there. Uh, what's her name? Nicole Hannah Jones um, said, well, you know, this is just property and property is whiteness. And it's, yeah. I mean, or th I think it was the same year that book came out uh, in defensive looting. Defensive looting. And yeah. I don't know if but there was one section of it where they were talking about the Watts riots and then they were talking about the riots in the nineties in LA and the Korean grocers. And, and in the book, she says, just like how in the sixties, you know, um, Jews were the face of capital in their neighborhood. In the 90s, it was Koreans that were the face of capital in their neighborhood. So, you know, again, like making them white, giving them whiteness because capitalism is white, uh, you know, is upholding whiteness and white supremacy and all that nonsense. And it's, I mean, she was on NPR for Christ's sakes. Like, okay, again, uh, it, it could be a horrific book and whatever. And, you know, NPR wants to have someone on and they want to challenge them. But I mean, they're, they're lauding them. You know, like, yeah, it, it's, I mean, there was our national broadcaster um, had someone on and in their book, they write a fantasy about how they're going out and killing white people. And it's, yeah. and, you know, again, they're lauding these people. And it's just like, no, this is not right. So at first I was, I was trying to like educate people on like the whole Jews and whiteness issue. Because it, it's totally antithetical to Juda Judaism, white or black or anything like that. So they are that's sort of a colonialist idea that's being impinged upon Judaism and upon other um, nationalities as well and ethnicities. But I stopped doing that because I don't care what color anybody's skin is. I don't care who's white, who's black, who's brown or whatever you want to call yourself. Um, the way that anti-racist talk about white people is dehumanizing, it's scapegoating, it's stereotyping, and it's flat out wrong. And it needs to stop. Because anytime this has happened in history, bad things have resulted. And no one knows that better than Jews. But, it, but it's also then saying it's not just the color of the skin, it's the thought process. And then giving those attributes to other people and then saying, okay, well, they've taken on whiteness. So they're fair game. I mean, this whole thought process and it's just like, who's oppressed, who's oppressor, who's got power, who doesn't. They look at everything so superficially and like, is it, you know, it's just waving a flag and saying, come and attack these people. Like, I mean, 
again, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to compare this to Islam again, because I see the same things happening again and again and again. And it's just, oh, they don't really mean that. They don't really mean they want to kill apostates. They don't really mean all this. It's just like, there's, you know, Asians being attacked. There's a video of some black woman saying to a bunch of people, yeah, we're going to go attack some Asian stores, blah, blah, blah. And I have friends like, oh, they don't really mean that. I'm like, but it's happening. They're doing it. They're telling you what mm-hmm. they believe. And it's like that. And, you know, like, like people being incredulous of that. I'm like, come on. Like, it's like, how many times do you have to go through this? Like, they're telling you what they want. And individually, they might not do it. But if you get enough people together, they're going to be brave as a crowd. They're going to go do it. Yeah. I mean, I see a similar thing with um, relations between Israel and the Palestinians. Like, they're very clear in their charters that they want the destruction of Israel. But we have to pretend like that's not really what they want and they really wouldn't do it. And it it just gets crazy. Yeah. And it's, but I mean, the whole Israel thing too, like, like the, just the, the most recent one, they wouldn't talk about the Palestinian, you know, you, you didn't hear about the Palestinian authorities firing rockets onto themselves, except from oh, a few, yeah. you know, smaller sources coming out of the Middle East. And, you know, after a while, then finally some of the bigger outlets in the U S and Europe started like talking about it, but it's just, okay. You know what? You can have all kinds of criticisms of policies if you want, and we mm-hmm. can talk, you know, we could talk about settlements. We can talk about individual policies. It's fine. But to put everything wholly on one side, like you mentioned, and then you have, you know, the Hamas charter, which, yeah, you know, like from the river to the sea, like, you know, like they, they're, but it's a lot of the people talking about it don't even really realize what's going on there because it's just talking points. They'll say, oh, the, you know, we can't have a two state solution, but it's like, okay, you're not going to get a two state solution the way it's standing right now. If you'd be lucky to get a three state one, because I mean, Hamas and Fatah hate each other. So, like, they're, they're exactly, you know, they're not going to work together. Like, it's, it, it's like these people who have no clue about what that region's like and what they're talking about. Like I said, yeah, there's things that Israel does that I don't agree with. And I'm sure, or maybe they're, you know, I don't know, but like, but we can talk about them, but it's just, if you do it in that post-colonial lens and like you'd mentioned how, like this is a colonizing set of ideas. I see the same thing in the middle East in, um, in Muslim countries where yeah. if you try to bring in enlightenment values, you get the post-colonial pushback of how this is whiteness. This is white Western ideas. This is taking away our, our ideas, even though you can trace some of this thought back. Like if it wasn't for the golden age of Islam, this wouldn't have gotten into Europe. They're the ones who preserved the geek right. Greek writing. Um, but it's also in India. Um, there's a woman in India who she did this movie called dysphoric. Uh, and she talks about how the gender ideology is, destroying the rights that women slowly started gaining in India. And it's, you know, she's like, now we're losing rights faster than we can get them. We're losing rights before we even got them because now this gender ideology has come in and taken over. And it, so it is, a, it is a colonizing thing going around the world. And it is, you know, I ramble a little more here, like um, South Africa in 2016, they had a conference that, that said science must fall. 
and you had the philosophy department against the science department talking about this. And at one point, someone in the philosophy department said, well, you know, our shaman can call lightning down on people. And someone in the science department snickered and they were made to apologize for snickering at that. Whoa. In 2020 or 2021, a couple of universities in South Africa announced that they were doing black physics. Now we're importing this garbage and China's doing the Belt and Road, and you know they own ports in Africa. They own, like you know they own mine. Like it's, it, it's, it's so detrimental to the whole enterprise of the Enlightenment. If we give it up, who's gonna like take up that torch? It's it's there's no one right now. Yeah, and I mean it really seems like the West is intent on self destructing when you look at it that way. I, I mean, like if you, I don't know if you read David, uh, Douglas Murray's book, uh, the strange death of Europe. No, I haven't. He, he talks about, uh, something in there. Well, he talked about two things in there. Uh, one of them's from the American uh, States, but the other one was like, I think it was the, the Swedish foreign minister, but it was someone high up in the Swedish government who said, you know, what is Swedish culture? It's nothing. If it goes away tomorrow, what does it matter? And I mean, that's scary. But the other thing that really, that the scary. other thing that really made me laugh though was uh, it was an incident with Arafat, and uh, so apparently there was some journalist interviewing Arafat, and there was a delegation from the United States that was going around the Middle East, and then as this journalist was interviewing Arafat, there was a knock on his door. Someone came into the American delegations here, and then the journalists just like peeked up, like what are they here for? And Arafat started laughing, and they said, "Oh, they're here to apologize for the Crusades," and that's what they were doing. They were going, an American delegation was going around the Middle East to apologize for the Crusades. What the U.S. has to do with the Crusades, whatever. But I mean, it's 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 so ludicrous. Yeah, it's historically ignorant. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it, we get that up here too. Like in Canada, it was more post-colonialism than anything else. Then, in I'd say probably around like the 2010s, whatever more of the race stuff started coming in. But so we always had that post-colonial lens when it came to, you know, like they changed, they changed the names a few times. Like, you know, now it's first nations before it was indigenous. And then I think, you know, mm -hmm. they used to use the term Indian, um, you know, but like, uh, I think they might've used native as well for a while. So I mean, like the terms kept changing and stuff like that, but it's like, we had that with our residential schools, you know, it, I'm not saying their residential schools were good or anything like that, but mm -hmm. you know, the 65 vandalized and burnt churches, like all the recriminations, like the day of reconciliation, all this stuff for bodies that were never found, but you know, yeah. and then, you know, all kinds of apologies. I mean, we had Pope Francis here just recently apologizing for the Catholic church, which I mean, the Catholic church did horrible things in those schools, but they did horrible yeah. things in a lot of other schools too. Like, you know, just... yeah. So, and, and I keep coming back to, is this helping anyone? Cause I don't see it. It's helping diversity consultants. <laughs> That's that is the only group of people who are profiting from this and they're profiting quite well. But there's there's going to be a backlash. There's going to be consultants who help people like dewokeify their organization, and they're going to make money too. Yeah, and I mean, but again, like I said, I, I don't want to see the overcorrections. Like I do, you know, I don't. I, either, I do yeah. see some of it. Like like in Texas, when they actually end up banning cynical theories, I'm like, okay, you, that's a book you actually need. Like you, you don't, you're making it's 
people who don't know what they're talking about are making these policies. And it Yes. And they try to do it too quickly and it's ill-conceived. It was like, again, like if you go back to like when I was talking about that timeline, you know, all these people who are like, okay, well, Trump's fighting back against the woke and like, I'll look at the executive order. It's like, okay, yeah, he put out that executive order, but for three years, that stuff was going on in his government, in his administration. And he didn't know. And no one knew it was only when, you know, Chris Rufo started publicizing it that, and some whistleblowers came out that you started seeing what was going on. And it's like, yeah, uh, go ahead. Sorry. And, and, and I think he was absolutely, we want federal funds going towards this stuff, this anti-American, anti-human type of ideology? No. In Canada, we don't have the same protections that you have in the States. Like affirmative action is written into our Mm -hmm. Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, We also have something written to our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is called, uh, I mean, people colloquially call it the the, the notwithstanding clause. So there's uh, section 33 of the Charter. And if you invoke section 33, it says, notwithstanding any other sections of this charter, you can pass a law that overrides them. So, you know, and so whatever free speech laws we have, if a government wants to pass a law, they can invoke Section 33. And notwithstanding the free speech regulations in the Canadian Charter, we're going to pass this law anyways, and we're taking away your speech rights. And so, I mean, like our charter is pretty much worthless, uh, but I'd like to see more lawyers at least try to defend it for what it is and you know i mean we had a case here like i said i started following this quite a bit when i got back but there was a case in 2013 it was a first nations woman who was holding up a sign saying kill all white people and it went up to the human rights tribunal and because she's from a marginalized group they oh it's, it's okay it's understandable why she was holding up that sign intersectionality yeah. at work you know, it it's i mean it's it's like that's going to cause the overcorrections and now especially like what i'm worried about is the economy going worse and worse you always look for scapegoats yeah and you know you are in predominantly white countries and there's a lot of poor people and a lot of poor white people and if they start seeing this stuff and they're looking for scapegoats where are they going to go i mean i'd like to think that we're integrated enough and that the rank and file are, are not so racist and that wouldn't happen. But I, I don't know because we're in a place um, where I never thought that I never thought I would see in this country, in the world, actually. I would agree with you. I would have agreed with you more like if this was a late nineties, early two thousands, but with all this, you know, quote unquote equity and diversity stuff that's being pumped out and you are dividing people on by race, you are getting people to focus more and more on their race and you are getting people to focus on that stuff. I'm that like, that's where I'm worried. Like with the economy going really bad and people yeah. are focusing on the other who could be causing this. And then you're, you're purposely being asked to focus on race. And now gender as well, but I mean, it's like, you know, but you're, 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 you're giving people the scapegoats and when it yeah. gets really bad, it's people are going to look for someone to blame. And it's like, whatever, I'll bring up that school again, like the Fieldstone Academy, like you know, it, it took a few months for these kids. You know, it's, it's like, I mean, I've done, I know they've done experiments where they break people up into groups and like, okay, you guys like chocolate and you guys like vanilla. 
Yeah. And then all, all of a sudden you start getting in-group, out-group animosity happening over something as innocuous as, chai, uh, as ice cream. And so yeah. when you do that with... Or like a football yeah, game. Exactly. But when you do that with race, like that's, you know, that's where you're going to start getting some really awful stuff happening. And we are seeing it. We're seeing it more and more. So, yeah, and that, that is why I push back so much against these affinity groups that are separated by race. And, the, you know, the entire language used in anti-racism, according to Kendi. Yeah. I don't know like, I'll, if you have, I'll send you the paper if you have time you can give it a read. But this, I think the paper was from 1995, and it was actually a critique of critical race theory. And they were mm-hmm. talking about how the attacks on merits through CRT will lead to anti-Asian and anti-Semitic feelings and, you know, policies and stuff coming forward. And there's like, you know, and sure enough, like the attack on merit merit is, is hurting Asians and Jews because, you know, Asians and Jews are doing better in schools than, you know, like, yeah. but it hurts black people. Oh yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. No, no, it does. I mean, it, it hurts yeah. everyone. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I've always said that the the whole like the affirmative. I've never been a big fan of affirmative action, but if you want mm-hmm. to do that for colleges and universities, instead of sending kids who aren't prepared and then having them flunk out or having them go into one of these bullshit degrees that gives them a reason why they flunked out or why they were going to flunk out, mm-hmm. so you know what? Yeah, okay, we see something good in you, and we want to offer you a place at whatever Harvard, Yale, wherever, you know. But we think you need a year of prep. So go to the like, you know, this community college or go here, take these courses, get a B average, and you got a guaranteed spot in the university the next year. Like the- But why should that person get a spot over someone who's worked hard all their life and gotten the grades and the scores to get in? Like that's I could I, that's the thing I struggle okay, with. Okay, I can see that too. I can Okay, first of all, if you don't fix the feeder system, you're going to always have this situation. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. So, I mean, that has to go in concert with fixing the feeder system as well. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. like I said, if you do see some people who show potential, and so, like, so if, so let's say the, the, the school year that started this year, so they're going to a community college or something, or they're going somewhere where they're taking up these makeup courses, they're not starting university that year. So, someone else, can take mm-hmm. your spot this year and the following year, if they haven't proven that they can get that B average or whatever, then they don't get a spot. Like, you know, yeah, it, it's like, yeah. so that would be, a, yeah, I could see that working. That would be a good program. Mm-hmm. And even before there are programs like that, people can do that. They can go to like a community college, get it really get good grades yeah. and then transfer. But I guess the, the supports aren't there. Yeah. No, but I mean, if, yeah. I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it's again like I, I get. Oh no, it's I keep okay. going back to, kind of thinking to myself. Yeah, I, I keep going back to that thing. It's like these policies and these like these ideas are so surface level that they they get you talking about the wrong thing. So it's like okay, there's not enough you know black kids in science, so lower the admissions requirements instead of fixing what's causing that or get rid of testing or whatever. It's just I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, and that goes back to like um, critical social justice ascribes everything to racism. So it's like monocausal. There's one cause for all of these disparities. 
And it's a very complex issue. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you read the recent article that John McWhorter wrote in the New York Times about, again, about merit and all that. Um, And he talked about how, well, you know, let's take a look. And he, he mentions that, you know, okay, Asian students study this much longer, you know, than black students and like, you know, even over white students and whatever that you're talking about. And then, you know, Kendi being Kendi freaked out about it, but it's like, okay, what are you proposing? Yeah. But once it became um, something to use to virtue signal and it became part of like the province of the elite or the elect as John McWhorter calls them, then to step out of line with that is to lose your social standing, your standing in your organization, your, maybe your friends and, so people all have to pretend like the emperor has clothes. The whole religion thing, like it does act a lot like a religion and it does, you know, mm-hmm. the blasphemy laws are there. And um, I see some similarities with Islam. Um, like there's a thing in Islam called in, like ijtihad and it's the struggle against yourself. So you, mm-hmm. you look internally and you try to fix yourself and make yourself better and whatever it is. The whole thing of, you know, checking your privilege and it, it, it just reminds me exactly of that. And it's just, you know, there's, yeah. Um, but yeah. And it's, some people do need to kind of think to check their privilege. Like I get what they're saying. They're not going on about nothing, but the way that this is being implemented and taught and talked about is entirely wrong. And the fact that you would have these kinds of sessions in, in a workplace setting where you're going to bear your soul in front of your colleagues. That is not a good idea ever. <laughs> no, but it's, but it's also the way it's done. Like you said, it's, you know, we have to find the white supremacy. It's, it's the, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not that did racism occur. It's how racism manifested itself. Like it's, it's there mm-hmm. all the time. And, you know, I think. And what a horrible way to look at life. Oh, it's okay. Uh, I'd done a short little thread on this. So I'd worked a, a long, um, I worked about, you know, a little over 12 years in war zones. And so we continuously got situational awareness training and like mind awareness training and all this kind of stuff, especially if we left the bases and it conditioned you to look for certain things. And so just before I stopped doing my overseas work, I was back in Montreal, my brother, who didn't live here he was all also came into town and we'd gone to see a movie and we we're coming back to my place downtown montreal about 10 30 11 o'clock at night we come to a red light there's a bus stop and there's a box of pampers at the bus stop and no, no one else it's all empty and my first thing in my head is that that's out of place and it's an ied you know and then i had to give myself a shake because i'm downtown montreal it's like no it's not an ied it's you know it's it's a box of pampers but I got conditioned to think like that. And then when I started reading, like, so I started reading this stuff in 2018 and I, for about 18 months, I read pretty much only CRT intersectionality, gender and queer theories, but mainly just CRT and intersectionality. And like, you know, you must've been a load of fun. Oh oh God. But, but I would find myself like in day-to-day situations like, well, that's racist. Or, or my mind was just going there and it's like, okay, this is conditioning. Like it, you know, it's like Anthony Robbins. You got to keep going, seeing him over and over and over again. It's, or like the other people who were into like, uh, or I mean church or our mosque or, you know, like even like synagogues or anything like that. Like the, 
you have to keep repeating the same message. And again, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to broadly overbrush because there are, you know, different churches, different mosques, whatever, but mm-hmm. like, it's, you have to keep reinforcing that. And that's what, like, that's what those affinity groups are for. That's why you have to have those yeah. stupid, um, you know, diversity trainings over and over and over again, because it's the same garbage and they have to reinforce it and they have to make sure that, you know, you are thinking the right way. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because I had a similar story to yours. I lived in Israel during the second intifada Mm -hmm. and there were like bombings and shootings every day. It was really, really bad. And when I had come back um, to the States for a visit, someone left a backpack on we were in like Macy's or somewhere with my mother and someone left a backpack and walked away. And I was like, really freaked like mama. And, and she was like, she didn't even get it. And then I realized and I was like, Oh my God, I really need to just chill out for a while because this isn't normal. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, but like I said, it's, it's just conditioning, right? So you get, con- yeah. you know, in, you start focusing on certain things because you need to. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it creeps up when it, when you don't want it to and it's but with this stuff it's like they're they're conditioning kids like you know i try to shy away from the term groomer because it's got way too much other baggage mm-hmm. so it's just like they indoctrinate kids and it's you know like it, i equate it to like intelligent design like intelligent design wasn't teaching you the catechism right yeah. but it was bringing in the story of genesis is bringing creationism into the classroom by creating a curriculum based on, you know, on Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that's what this stuff is doing. Yes. No, they're not teaching you Derek Bell and Delgado in, in kindergarten, but. In a very bastardized version of it. I mean, I don't, I I keep, I keep using the example of Huck Finn. I said, it's also, it doesn't matter what they teach. It's also how they teach it. So if you had a really woke teacher, you could teach Huck Finn in a woke way where you talk about how Huck is using Jim's emotional labor to understand about you know Jim's problems, and then Huck makes himself out to be a white savior, and all. I mean, you could like totally destroy destroy the message of the book. So I mean, it's you know like people. I think I think part of the problem with a lot of that pushback to the CRT stuff was they were focusing too much on the content and not the ideology behind the content, which I think would have been mm-hmm. better. But whatever. But laws are very hard to write. You have to be very specific. And when you write a law, you're also writing a way to get around it. So it is a real issue um, how to address these things through a law, I'll say. Yeah. I mean, like I do. Okay. So I wanted to talk about that, like kind of sticking with that. Like the, uh, I think it was Idaho, which I think they had the best of these laws, which all they said was, you can't teach anything like they were reaffirming federal and state civil rights laws. And they said, you can't teach anything that contravenes these laws, which I think, I think that was perfect. Like you're. Yeah, it is perfect. It doesn't add much though. Cause you could already sue, but what we need are organizations that will help people finance their litigation and help people sue. Um, because that's the only way you're going to keep these, uh, these rights is by using them and, and making institutions abide by them. Yeah. And I mean, like, again, that was one of my things with the people, like, you know, whether I agreed with, with like, you know, with like, like I think it was Camille Foster and Thomas Chatterton Williams and David French. And I, I can't, I think it was Jason Stanley, Stanley who wrote like the four of them wrote those articles or that one article. Yes. I remember um, that. Yeah. Okay, now I agreed with some of that, 
but at the same mm-hmm. point, I'm like, okay, you're asking parents to allow something you're acknowledging as racist to be taught in their schools and then to sue the schools. I'm like, if I was a parent, I'm like, you know what? I'll take the stuff that's, you know, this stuff is breaking civil rights laws. The other stuff might be breaking civil rights laws, but at least it's not teaching my kids racist stuff. So then let's have the other parents sue. So that's, I mean, I would have been much more in favor of Biden keeping Trump's executive order. Cause I know like Crenshaw and other people were getting ready to sue <coughs> based on free speech and all the, against the, the executive order. And like, I would have much rather them sue and defend their stuff. Yeah. I think that's a much better way to go around it. But I, you know, like I said, it's then putting the onus on parents. Yeah, I agree. And even if let's say there was a parent who had all the money to finance the litigation and had the wherewithal to do so, his or her kids will be long gone by the time it's moved through the courts. So they will have the damage will be done. The last U.S. election, um, I was like, the only sane thing to do is vote down ticket. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't have voted for Biden. Or I don't think I, I, I couldn't have voted for Trump either. And I, I don't think, you know, write someone in or whatever, but or vote down ticket. And like, if I was living in California, I would have voted against Prop 16 and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they're, they did it again. I mean, you're coming up to the, yeah. uh, you're coming up to the, the midterms. And what's going to happen if the Republicans win huge? You know, it's, you were talking about Trump for the last two years or, or, or how DeSantis is worse yeah. than Trump. Like you didn't make your side more electable. Like it's, I'm still just looking at them. Like you're not doing anything. I was really excited about Brett Weinstein's unity 2020. I, yeah. and I know it's not, maybe it's a little naive, but I think something like that is our only hope. Yeah. Um, Someone I know was kind of involved with that. And I told him, like I said, it's just, you know, it came in too late. Um, yes. I, like, I like the idea. Um, but I'm like, I told him, like, if you want to do it, you know, that, that election was gone. But I said, okay, if you have a network around the country, start it at a local level. Again, mm-hmm. I think in Canada, we have a different system. But in the States, yeah. people should don't put that much power in the hands of the president whether it's, you know, real or imagined work mm-hmm. on your local stuff. Like your, your local city, city council is what takes care of schools and police and all that stuff. You know. And the problem is in those, in some, in cities, like in my city, it's heavily, like it's run by a democratic machine. There's, there's, I don't see a way of addressing that and, and moving it at all. Because people just get tired of it and they go move to the suburb where the suburbs where they can um, affect local change. But in the cities, the democratic run cities, it feels impossible. Yeah. But I mean, you have to try. Like it's, it's that's just the thing. Like, like I said, in Canada, our, our system is different because so when you go in to vote in the States, you vote for the president and then you vote for, you know, all the other stuff down ticket. Like here mm-hmm. we vote for our local MP. So and after the election's over, whichever party has the most MPs elected, they're selected to form the government, whether it's a majority or a minority. So a lot of Canadians, you know, myself included, like focus too much on the party leader. You know, yeah. oh, I'm voting for Trudeau or I'm, well, now we got a new conservative leader. Okay, I'm voting for him. I, it's like, no, 
who's a local person in your writing and go vote for them and hold them to account because that's what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's right now the leaders of the parties have so much control in Canada over their, like their, their members that it's, I don't think Canadians are ever going to be able to do that again. Look, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. So um, if you wouldn't mind like telling people, you know, like what's going on with you now, like what are you like, are you like in the process of doing anything or so I have a lawsuit that's at the EEOC level. Um, it takes a long time. It, it, I don't know if I'll eventually request a right to sue letter. Once you request that letter, then you can sue in federal or state court. Um, I don't know yet. I, I'm hoping we can come to a settlement, but I'm not sure. I just want this stuff to stop. And I want an assurance that it's not going to happen again. Um, but I, I really don't know. Like the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when they asked us to sign a contract that said, own that all white people are racist and I'm not the exception. I refused to sign it. Then I had to go, because I refused, I had to go to a meeting with the DEI consultant where she probed my thoughts and it was supposed to be a short meeting. It was like 90 minutes. It was crazy. And that's when I was like, okay, this is really gone too far and I can't have my integrity and put up with this stuff anymore. Hey, have you ever uh, gone to a Scientology center and been audited? No. Yeah, I, <laughs> have you? Yeah. I was, I was visiting a friend in Amsterdam and they had one there and I, I went in and it was just kind of funny. Um, but anyways, what you just described there to me reminded me of like being audited. And it's just like, you know, like, you, like I said, you have to go in and reflect on why you said that and where did those thoughts come yeah. from? And it's just like, eh, yeah. it's, it was exactly that. And the, I kept asking why, what is the purpose of this meeting? And the answer I kept getting back was we need to determine if you're safe to be around your black and brown colleagues and clients. So all of a sudden, what, I'm a terrorist? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, no, but I mean, like, go on for hours about this, but it's like the whole questioning someone's identity, you know, quote unquote, harmful to them, because I mean, they make everything about that identity. Again, it's, you know, fundamentalist Islam. If you question anything in Islam, mm -hmm. you're attacking all, all Muslims, right? It's, and, you know, you can, you know, I see, like, you talk about like Judaism or whatever I see the far end of that as well like if any any criticism of Israel is automatically a criticism of Jews it's like well no there might be some yeah, legitimate no. ones like it's it's you know it, it's getting to that point and it's but with this it's mm -hmm. it's so baked in that your identity has to be your your you know any question on that is like a question on, on your existence again like mm -hmm. I said I don't want to keep you too too much longer so if, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you and I'll include the links uh, I'll include that in the description and the link to the article from uh, the Washington Free Beacon and also mm -hmm. I think you wrote one in Colette with uh, David Bernstein I'll include mm -hmm. that as well thank you so I'm, I'm at Twitter Levitt Nicole 7 um, I'm also on LinkedIn I, I don't really do any other social media you can also find me at jilv.org um, I I'm an advisor to JILV, so people can find me through that. So, so that's again, that's I think that's David's organization or when he helped Hedler. Yeah, David yeah. Bernstein. So that's mm -hmm. what uh, Jews. I can't remember what it stands for. Jewish it, Institute for Liberal yeah. Values. Yeah. I was struggling with the I. I'm like, I had liberal values. 
<laughs> Anyways, thank you very much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful talking to you. Have a good and, night. And thanks everyone for listening.